0: And welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. On Sunday night... Representative Ilhan Omar, a Democratic member of Congress from Minnesota, a freshman member, a Somali refugee, and one of the first two Muslim women elected to Congress, took to her Twitter account to attack AIPAC. When another tweeter posed the question of why American elected officials support Israel, Omar's reply was that, quote, It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Using a slang term for $100 bills and trafficking in the age-old anti-Semitic trope that Jewish money controls politics. She was swiftly condemned by many members of her own party, with the entire Democratic leadership ultimately putting out a statement criticizing her and emphasizing that support for Israel does not come from American dollars, but from the American people, from the fact that Americans as a whole support Israel. Omar eventually put out an apology via Twitter. Joining us now to discuss this latest incident by Representative Omar is AJC CEO David Harris. David, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Sethi. A number of critics on Twitter suggested that Representative Omar wasn't intending to say anything anti-Semitic, that she just stumbled across an anti-Semitic trope as she earnestly criticized money in politics.
1: Do you buy that? No, not for a moment. I think that's in a way condescending to, uh, to Ms. Omar. I think she knew exactly what she was doing, and people ought to grapple with the fact that she knew exactly what she was doing and saying. In a way, what she was saying was quite sophisticated. I mean, when she used the term, it's the Benjamin's baby, you know, it's not language that people necessarily all know. She knew exactly what she was doing, and we shouldn't underestimate that. In her
0: tweeted apology, she said that she's, quote, grateful for Jewish allies and colleagues who are educating me on the painful history of anti-Semitic tropes. She said that she's listening and learning. But then she went on to lump APAC in with the NRA and fossil fuels, which are kind of, you know, things that any good liberal knows that you're supposed to be opposing. Right. So of course you oppose the NRA, of course you oppose fossil fuels, and oh, by the way, of course you should be opposing the Israel lobby. Was her apology enough, or maybe with that second paragraph, was her apology actually too much? What would we have wanted to see, to know that her contrition was sincere?
1: Well, first of all, I think what you're reading is Exhibit A for what I said just a moment ago. She is not unsophisticated, and she's not simply stumbling into these things. She knows exactly what she's doing and she's saying, and I think people need to wake up to that. Was that a sincere apology? I find it difficult to believe. Let's take the first part first, which sounds fine. What exactly is it that these Jews she's referring to are teaching her? What has she learned? What does she plan to do with whatever it is that she's learned? The proof of the pudding is always going to be in the eating. In this case, not in the wording, but in the action. Uh, it remains to be seen whether Congresswoman Omar is going to be an ally in the fight against anti-Semitism or quite the contrary. A few words should not suddenly change the subject. And on the second part, yes, I mean, having allegedly made an apology, she then makes another swipe, very consciously referring back to AIPAC, as you said, lumping AIPAC together with two groups that are, are toxic to the center and center left of the American political spectrum. So once again, she kind of got in the last licks there, which is why I say she should not be underestimated. Yair Rosenberg wrote in Tablet, um, and I
0: should preface this by saying he was quite condemnatory of Representative Omar's statements on Twitter initially, and he's become really something of an expert on anti-Semitism in American politics. He wrote that, quote, Representative Omar deserves dialogue, not just denunciation. She has voiced an exceedingly rare willingness to reconsider her presumptions and put herself in the shoes of Jews. Do you agree with this statement? Are you hopeful that she may yet learn from this incident?
1: Look, first of all, to the listeners of this podcast, they should understand that the American Jewish Committee doesn't need to be urged by others to engage with people, even people with whom we disagree. Normally speaking, we would be among the very, very first in this nation to welcome the arrival in Congress of someone who herself was an immigrant, had a powerful story of arrival here, represents a breakthrough in the demography of the U.S. Congress. We'd be among the first. We'd be cheering from a nonpartisan seat, but we'd be cheering for this sort of new reflection of America. And the normal instinct will be, well, maybe she doesn't understand. Maybe she doesn't get it. Maybe she hasn't met with other people with different points of view. So we can come along and perhaps educate and enlighten her. And I'd like to believe that. And I'm not abandoning the hope. If the opportunity presents itself one day, let's see. We'll test it. But I think there's also a risk here of a certain naivete, according to a number of newspaper reports. And I don't know whether Mr. Rosenberg saw them or not. The Jewish community in Minnesota has tried that path for years with Ilhan Omar, and they say they failed and they no longer necessarily have trust in the relationship. For example, she was the one who assured them before the election that she opposed the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel. Lo and behold, she's elected in November, and she does a 180, and she's in favor. Well, I happen to believe that her original position was to be in favor. She parked that position for a while for convenience sake. Again, don't underestimate her. And she's back exactly where she started. So I don't exclude the possibility of dialogue. I certainly don't exclude the possibility of people changing their views over time. But I think that in the case of Ilhan Omar, what we're seeing again and again and again is someone who has very deep-seated beliefs and they're not going to easily change. Representative Max Rose, who's a fellow freshman
0: congressman, Jewish from Long Island, also a Democrat, he was among the first, actually a a Democrat who won a very closely contested race that at the outset no one expected him to be able to flip that seat. He was among the very first to condemn Representative Omar's comments on Twitter, and he later called out the media for covering this incident extensively while largely ignoring anti-Semitic dog whistles that featured heavily in Republican ads in the recent election cycles, including, by the way, a 2018 ad from minority leader Kevin McCarthy, who has been highly critical of Omar, but who himself, just a few months back, warned that three coincidentally Jewish billionaires, George Soros, Tom Steyer, and Mike Bloomberg, were trying to, quote, by the 2018 election for the Democratic Party. Is there more that AJC and others who are critical of Omar need to be doing to call out the anti-Semitism on the not-all-that-far-right?
1: Look, from the perspective of AJC, and we've been tracking anti-Semitism now for well over a century, and most recently in this century since its sort of re-emergence in Europe and now in the United States, our first goal is to be honest in our assessment and that means depoliticizing the analysis of antisemitism. For us, anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism irrespective of its source. It's no better if it comes from the right than the left or vice versa. It's no different if it comes from a male or a female or a young person or an old person. No one gets a pass here by dint of political party or age or gender or, for that matter, faith or race. So for us, whether it's coming from the right or coming from the left, Cefi, the issue is the same. They need to be called out. They need to be confronted where necessary. If there's a chance for dialogue and reversal and redemption, we want to be part of the process. But we're not part of the Democratic, Republican, polarized America that essentially is saying, yes, there's a problem of anti-Semitism, but for those of us on the right, it only comes from the left or... Yes, there's a problem of anti-Semitism, but for those on the left, it only comes from the right. That's childish. That's silly. We're about anti-Semitism, not about partisan politics.
0: So while others are trying to score points with
1: accusations of anti-Semitism, we're just here keeping score? We want to be certain that those people who cross the line— And who indulge in anti-Semitism of whatever kind are held accountable and first and foremost by their own political party and then by others including of course AJC that there should be no place in respectable American society for any form of anti-Semitism or for that matter any form of racism. So whether it's targeted against Jews or whether it's targeted against other minorities, be they African-American or, for that matter, Muslim, AJC will always be among the very first to call them out and to demand accountability. But we're not going to tilt towards or tilt against one side or the other because we're driven by partisan instincts. We are a Jewish organization that is not composed of Democrats or Republicans masquerading as Jewish activists. We're Jews concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism, whatever its sources, and the need to confront those sources, as we are about any form of racism or bigotry that pollutes our country.
0: I'm glad you raised accountability to one's own party because that brings me to my last question. David, my ultimate takeaway from Omar Gate or Benjamin's Ghazi, if you will is that the democratic institutions are holding strong. Maybe this is a sunnier, a a rosier takeaway than many others have had, but people conjectured that this freshman class could be as destabilizing to the democratic institution as the Tea Party wave was to the GOP. But Ilhan Omar was called to the carpet by Nancy Pelosi, which I imagine must be terrifying. Pelosi and the rest of the leadership are strong, staunch supporters of Israel, and they made very clear that they would not brook the kind of anti-Semitism that they heard in Omar's tweet, and frankly, that they weren't interested in anti-Zionism either. What do you make of my read? Am I being too charitable
1: here? No, I, I don't think you are at the end of the day. I, I think what we've seen, and again, I, I, I know that this is a hyperpolarized America, so what I'm about to say will trigger some reaction from one side or the other. But we've seen, as you suggested, in the Democratic Party establishment, a very swift and clear response to Ilhan Omar. I will say that having said that, Sefi— I was disappointed by the Democratic Party's lack of response to Rashida Tlaib, another member of the freshman class of Congress, when she not only wrapped herself on Election Day in a Palestinian flag, not an American flag, a Palestinian flag, and within days of arriving in Washington in January, accused four senators, effectively, of dual loyalty. I I thought the Democratic Party response to that should have been swifter. It didn't matter whether the senators were Republican or Democrat. It violated the decorum and the spirit of the U.S. Congress. They were both, as it happens. The senators were Democrats and Republicans, as it happens. But the point for me was it didn't matter whether they were Democrats or they were Republicans. This is something that is not done in the U.S. Congress. And yet they were silent. With one or two exceptions, they were silent, whereas in the case of Ilhan Omar— They reacted swiftly and strongly. There are still questions about why she is on the Foreign Affairs Committee, why she's going to be dealing with issues like the Middle East. That remains to be seen. I will also add that, again, I know that there are those who think the president of the United States has not been strongly committed to the fight against anti-Semitism, but in the State of the Union, he made clear his position. He appointed a special envoy on anti-Semitism globally, Elon Carr, with whom AJC has met. Very impressive, and he's going to be very tenacious on the subject. My only point is not to endorse one side or the other. It is to say, to your point, that the establishment in this country still considers anti-Semitism a taboo. And when the subject has come up, whether slowly or quickly, whether in bipartisan or partisan fashion, they are still saying there are guardrails in this country, and we're not going to allow the conversation to go beyond the guardrails. That's encouraging a time when many Jews in this country and elsewhere are nervous about a rising tide of anti-Semitism. David, thank you very much. My pleasure as always, Effie.
0: The French government just reported a marked rise in anti-Semitic incidents in 2018, and the counter is already rolling in 2019, with swastikas and other anti-Semitic graffiti seemingly popping up left and right, and with the deeply sad story this week of the chopping down of a tree planted to honor the memory of Ilan Halimi, a French Jew who was tortured for three weeks and then murdered by a Muslim gang in 2006. Ilan Halimi was the first victim of this recent spate of anti-Semitism in France, but sometimes it feels like the next victim could be attacked at any moment. Joining us now to discuss this recent report and what can be done is Anne-Sophie Seban-Bakash, director of AJC Paris. Anne-Sophie, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for hosting me today.
0: Anti-Semitic acts in France rose a staggering 74%. In 2018 over 2017 the total number uh, went from 311 in 2017 to 541 last year now any number would be too many but what are we to make of more than 500 anti-semitic acts against the world's third largest jewish community
2: yeah, as you just said, any number would be shocking. And those new numbers are unfortunately not a real surprise for us in, in France because, you know, the, the prime minister, Edouard Philippe, a few months ago in November, he already announced the preliminary numbers of anti-Semitic acts in France. It was already a rise by 69 percent and it was already a shock. And the new numbers that were announced two days ago by the Minister of Interior are just a confirmation of what we already observed. And I mean, we, we, we can talk about it for hours hours if you want.
0: Well, so, for example, sometimes we're told that events in the Middle East cause anti-Semitism in Europe. This is something that we heard a lot, for example, in 2014. I think there was also a spike, and certainly in 2015, it was a higher number. And people pointed to the 2014 war that Israel fought in Gaza and said, well, look what Israel's doing in Gaza. That's why these numbers are higher in France. But there is no war going on in Israel right now. So do we think that these numbers help to put that myth to bed?
2: Yeah, I think it's a bit outdated to say that, to talk about the importation of the conflict in France as a source of anti-Semitism, because now the prejudices against the Jews are so deep-rooted in the French society. And, and of course, it's a mix of old prejudices from the extreme right, from the extreme left, and anti-Zionism. But anti-Zionism now in France is something that is rooted in France. It's not even like coming from the news in Gaza or the news uh, elsewhere in the Middle East. It's deep-rooted in some areas in France, especially with the youth. And yeah, we cannot anymore relate the rise of anti-Semitism to the situation in Israel.
0: You you say that it's deeply rooted in some areas in France. You know, we at AJC often talk about the three sources of anti-Semitism, right? The anti-Semitism that comes from the far left, from the far right and from radical elements in the Muslim community. Do you think that there is a particular source that's leading to this increase in France right now?
2: The fact is that in France, we have no ways to measure the different sources of anti-Semitism. We have no way to say, like for this year, there are more anti-Semitic acts coming from the left or from the right. But what we can say is that what we observed during the last past month is a lot of anti-Semitic and slogans. And usually it's Vastiska. Uh, sign and other type of insult like Juden you know, in German, in German, etc. And we know that this kind of acts usually comes from the extreme right but still uh, we have to be cautious because we have no no way to measure this and say it's coming more from the extreme right than from the other source of anti-Semitism. And we also think that there are these two sources but we also have to notice that there are other sources that are crossing those different categories. Uh, for instance, the fact that conspiracy theories in France are very high, and it's present in the extreme right groups, uh, extreme left, and it's very present among some parts of the Muslim community to believe, for instance, that there is a world Zionist conspiracy. It's, it goes everywhere. I mean, it's, it's crossing all these kind of all these different sources. And same, and we have a rise of uh, identity groups in France as well, uh, which are difficult to categorize in one category or the other, but they also bring in their ideology. Uh, anti-Semitism. I, I'm thinking about the group called the Indigènes de la République which is quite close to the kind of group that you have in the States what we call some identity groups and it, it, this is new and this is very dangerous and it's a new source of anti-Semitism that we will have to focus on I think.
0: Why is it so hard to measure from which anti-Semitic element different acts are coming from?
2: Because the numbers come from the, the police and, uh, and the Ministry of Interior, and they don't uh, really classify those acts into this kind of categories. And also sometimes it's hard to classify them because we don't really know who was the author, uh, what was the, the reasoning behind, the ideology behind. So we just don't do this classification.
0: The interior minister, Christophe Kastner, has said that anti-Semitism is spreading like a poison, like a venom. And at the French parliament on Tuesday, Prime Minister Edouard Philippe said, these acts are revolting. So it's good to hear the government speaking out against this. You know, I, I often say that anti-Semitism, from my vantage point, it seems like anti-Semitism in Europe today is really not coming from the government. The governments in so many countries, in France, in Germany, in you know really lots of places across Europe are saying the right things. In many instances, they're doing the right things, which is kind of a total contradistinction to the last like, major surge of anti-Semitism in Europe or the memorable one during World War II, where it was the governments that were in many ways driving anti-Semitism in Europe as a, a way to rile their people up. But it seems like it's coming from the people and it seems like the governments, the elites maybe in society are, are in the right place. But are they doing enough? Is there more that the government could or should be doing in France to combat this rise?
2: I think it's it's a very good comment, and I'm thinking exactly the same as you. I'm always saying that we have a strong will from the French government. There is no doubt; uh, they are committed to fight against antisemitism. Every time there is an act, there is an insult, they are condemning it very strongly, uh, very vocally. Uh, there is no doubt, and we have very good relationship with the Ministry of Interior and with the interministerial delegation for the fight against racism and antisemitism. They are good partners. Um, but this being said, I think they could do more in a way that they are saying the good things to the public audience, but they don't necessarily um, translate those uh, declarations into concrete measures. For some aspects of the fight against anti-Semitism, they do, but I think there is still progress to, to make. And I will take the example of anti-Zionism because it's something very important for us and very visible in France. Uh, It's been many years now. The first one was, I think, Prime Minister uh, Manuel Valls, who declared that anti-Zionism is a new form of anti-Semitism. And now all the political leaders in France have said it again and again. Uh, President Macron said it last year. And it's good to have those political declarations. But now when you look at the policies and the measures, there's nothing to translate it that declaration into policies. And it's still something very sensitive. And actually, they tell us in our conversation that they don't really know how to tackle this issue because it's very politicized, it's very sensitive, but we need to tackle this. We need to address it and to find concrete measures to address the issue of anti Zionism because we see the numbers. It's still increasing. So yeah, there's a lot that could be done.
0: Now, there's another element that we haven't talked at all about yet, which is the Yellow Vest movement. And here in the U.S., the media has treated the yellow vest movement pretty sympathetically, pretty uncritically, just kind of looking at them as, you know, an economically oriented kind of, you know, spontaneous outcry from the people saying, you know, the taxes are too damn high, you know, we can't afford to live in this country, we can't afford to live our lives. And those things obviously inspire a great deal of sympathy, those challenges that they face. But 50% of yellow vest protesters surveyed in a recent study admitted to believing in a world Zionist conspiracy. How are they being covered in France? How does the French public understand the Yellow Vest protests? And is there a recognition that this supposedly economically oriented protest movement is also providing a home for many on the ideological fringe?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a very uh, important uh, subject. So I have to say that at the beginning of the movement, we were thinking uh, the same. Like we, we wanted to think that it's a spontaneous popular movement um, asking for more social justice and claiming that the price, uh, the old price was too high and, and, and any other kind of social um, demands. But very quickly, unfortunately, those demonstrations turned very violent and we saw uh, many radical elements in the movement. So... We were actually one of the first organizations to alert about it. And, and th- there is a paradox because the, the government and the elites were starting to, to criticize the movement because there were also a lot of violence against politicians. Like some MKs have been attacked in the in their house, um, have been beaten in the streets. Some journalists have been beaten in the streets during the demonstrations and so on. But still for a long time, and I think it's still the case today, there is a public support for the Yellow Vest. I think like 60% of the French are, are still supporting the movement. Uh, which is a bit alarming, but I think it will be decreasing and decreasing because, like, for instance, this weekend was the 18th week of the Yellow Vest protest and we only saw uh, very violent behavior in the streets, a lot of anti-Semitic tags, you know, in front of this uh, bagel store named Bagelstein. Uh, an anti-Semitic um, inscription, and so on. And I think that people start to realize that the radical elements, it's not uh, an anecdote, it's not marginal, it's actually marking and characterizing the movements. And we saw extreme-right groups fighting each other, with, uh, fighting with uh, extreme-left groups in the streets. And the thing is that the leaders of the movement are not rejecting what's happening within their movement, within the militants. And it's not acceptable, even though, you know, this movement is very anarchic. They reject any type of uh, representativeness. But my call is that it's not because they reject any type of representativeness that they are not responsible for what's happening within the movement. So at some point, they will have to condemn it or we will have to call them as they are like anti-Semitic and radical um, militants, because it's what we see for now a few months. And as you said, the, the last poll that was published by actually two think tanks that we are working a lot with is confirming that it's not a marginal and it's a trend in the movement. The fact that one yellow vest out of two believe in a in a world Zionist conspiracy, it's, it's shocking. And it's not only that. 50% believe that the last uh, terrorist attack in Strasbourg was a manipulation from the government to you know, escape the public attention from the Yellow Vest to another uh, terrible event. So, so today, I think we can definitely condemn the movement as a whole if they don't uh, react massively.
0: We are about a month and a half into 2019, and it's far too early to have any kind of concrete data. But do you expect the number of anti-Semitic acts in France to be lower in 2019 than 2018? Higher? Well, um,
2: I'm idealistic and I'm optimistic and and I work for HEC Paris. And if we are here, it's because we, we think that we can have an impact and reverse the trend. But when you look at the long term, it's true that anti-Semitism in France has been rising steadily since the beginning of the years 2000. So it's hard to be that optimistic. And we also see that it's very hard to reverse the trend, even though we have a strong political will and so on. I'm sure that the Yellow Vest movement had an impact on the rise of anti-Semitism during the last past months. So maybe if the, for instance, if this movement is slowing down, maybe we will see a a decrease. But should we be happy about the decrease? (laughs) I don't know, because it will be a decrease after a strong rise. And so. We need to think about the long term. I think if we think only about next year, we might be disappointed by the results. But still, our action needs to look at the long term and see what could be done. Like I told you, anti Zionism should be addressed. For now, there's nothing done. It will take, I think, a long time to really see like the implementation of concrete policies to fight against it. So it will take more than one year, but we still have to act about it very strongly. <laughs>
0: Well, An-Sophie, thank you for getting up every day and doing this critical work. It's, it's a long road. You're right. But I know that we at AJC are working hard to help us get there. Thank you. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Ilhan Omar. Good for the Jews? On Sunday, I was in D.C. with nearly 100 high school students from across the country who have been learning all year with AJC about how to become Jewish advocates in their schools today, when they get to the college campus, and really for the rest of their lives. They were there as part of AJC's Leaders for Tomorrow, or LIFT for short, annual D.C. Advocacy Day. We had a session on Sunday specifically focused on identifying anti Semitism in all of its many forms. And then Ilhan Omar dropped an amazing case study right into our laps. So on Monday morning, just before our 100 incredible students climbed Capitol Hill, I got up at the front of our conference room and asked them whether Omar's tweets were anti Semitic. Their thoughtful answers constituted a resounding yes. We seized the moment. Quickly, we added an additional talking point. At each of our meetings with Democratic offices, we'd call on those offices to condemn Omar's remarks. Here's what made that additional congressional request special, however. The main piece of legislation we were seeking to advance is a soon-to-be-introduced bipartisan bill called the Palestinian Partnership Fund Act. That bill would create an international fund of $100 million, which would support joint economic ventures among Palestinians, Israelis, and Americans, and also foster people-to-people exchanges between Israelis and Palestinians, all in an effort to create a more stable and secure reality for the people who live in Israel and the Palestinian territories. It's not a right-wing bill or a left-wing bill. It's the kind of bill people support when they are sincerely interested in improving the -the on-the-ground reality in the region. So we spoke up in our meetings for Israel, for Palestinians, and for Jews. Put another way on the hill, our Lyft students proved conclusively that being pro-Israel doesn't mean being anti-Palestinian. They demonstrated that supporting Israel doesn't somehow make you a less loyal American, as many on the political extreme suggest. They showed that the real Israel lobby isn't AJC or AIPAC or any other organization for that matter. The real force behind U.S. support for Israel is committed American citizens like our students who exercise their right to petition their government and proudly champion the shared values that underpin our alliance. I should add that our students were successful in their asks, as most of the offices we visited did indeed quickly speak out against Omar's offensive statements. So, though it may sound weird to some, and it even sounds a little weird to me, in a certain odd way, Ilhan Omar is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at Passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukong Doe. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.